0: Congratulations. Welcome. Welcome to the book. I'm glad you can join us for what we've been doing here over these last few weeks. Let me catch you up a little bit so that you're kind of aware of um, what we're entering into as we start chapter three. Chapter one began in a really different way. Almost every other book that you would see that Paul wrote in the New Testament usually begins with kind of the the traditional greeting. Hey, this is Paul. I'm writing to these people. I've got these people with me and I want to accent something about you guys, grace and peace. And then he goes on and he basically tells them what he's thankful for. If you read Philippians and Ephesians, you'd notice that pattern. A lot of it's just really Typical stuff, because it's a scroll, you identify who you are at the beginning, rather than at the end of your letter, like we would do. But most of it is just the way correspondence, you know, kind of was written during the day. That's, that's the way to write. Paul's one departure... In chapter one of Galatians, though, is not that he doesn't identify himself, because he does. It's not that he doesn't say who he's writing to. He does, he talks about this region of Galatia that that we've been looking on the the map. What we see on this map as Asia right here, those little lights right below, are really the cities that made up this region of the Galatian churches. And so he's writing to them. He identifies them in the beginning. There's no departure there. Grace to them, peace to them. Pretty typical. But where he would thank them and encourage them and point out evidences that God was at work among them, that's not the way he starts. The way he starts the book of Galatians is telling them how astonished he is that they have taken the good, real, authentic good news that was presented to them and traded it away for something cheap and an imitation. What he says is not really a message that's good at all. It's a fake good news. It's It's a fake gospel. The reason that he did that is going to be a little bit more clear to us as we continue into this book a little bit more. But it's kind of obvious to us that after Paul made his way up through these churches and explained the genuine gospel, somebody had come behind him and told him something else. He had these group of people or these other teachers had kind of come through and they were opposing Paul's message that Gentiles could come to God based on on just the fact that they heard something and believed it to be true what these others were saying is that there are elements of being Jewish that the Gentiles had to accept first before they could qualify to be received by God. And Paul's saying that if you buy into that, it's really not going to work at all. So for the end of chapter 1 and on the bulk of chapter 2, really what Paul is doing is telling the story of where he got commissioned, how he learned this good news, who he kind of had it authorized by, which to sum it up was nobody. He spent a ton of time away from the powerful people, only visited the powerful people in Jerusalem a couple of times. And then even when he was up at a distant city, largely filled with both Jews and Gentiles, Peter, one of the powerful people from Jerusalem, had come up to visit him and was just kind of hanging out with Jews and with Gentiles, sort of in in the understanding that God is accepting both Jew and Gentile, those related to Abraham and Jacob and those unrelated to Abraham and Jacob, those who had the law and those who didn't have the law. God was welcoming them all in and Peter, powerful Peter from Jerusalem, had come up and was interacting in such a way that we kind of gave the impression that there's no hierarchy until he got some message from Jerusalem Until people came up from Jerusalem, and then Paul says he started to act hypocritically. He started to distance himself from the Gentiles and only to eat with the Jews, which gave the opposite impression, that somehow the Gentiles weren't worthy. And so what Brad kind of began to explain for us last night was something that we need to make sure that we take step by step by step. And that is, how is somebody actually accepted by God? How is it that we get qualified to be blessed by God? And it's, it's that language that's going to be coming up that was summarized in one of the verses at the end of what Paul, or what Brad preached to us last week is this phrase, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, what Paul is doing in that verse is kind of talking about faith the way we talk about sports as relatively non athletic people. And I don't mean to, you know, say anything about any of you guys, but you wouldn't make any team you tried out for, I just gotta say. And yet, how many times have some team from Cleveland played some team from some other city, and when the game's over, we say something along the lines of, We won? Why do we do that? You sat there and had a hot dog. You did nothing, and yet you won? How can you possibly say that you won? There's, there's some bond of a sports fan and the team that they're rooting for, right? Even though, oddly enough, nobody, it seems, on that team came from our city, it's not as though we just get to pick people from Cleveland who play for Cleveland teams, right? We, we buy, we import others, we bring them. But because they're wearing our uniform, it's us who's won and it's us who's lost. It's just, that's the sports metaphor that, that kind of relates to what Paul's about to do. You see, that's what he does in this verse. I get something Jesus did. And the question is how? How is it that I died with his death? How is it that I live with his life? What is it that makes it possible for that to happen? And what Paul's going to do next in this, uh, in chapter three, is start to talk about a concept that was really common in the day and age in which he's written, but really unfamiliar to us. At the end of Moses' time, in talking with the people of Israel, so going all the way back into the New Testament for the first five books, Moses has learned he's not going to go into the promised land. And so he tells the people of Israel, when you get there, what I want you to do is set yourselves up on two mountains. And what you're going to do is, on one on one mountain, we're going to read all the, like, curses of those who don't follow the law. And if you just go to Deuteronomy chapter 27, that's all it says is, curse, 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 curse. Don't follow the law, your life is going to be cursed. And then from the other mountain, what we're going to do is we're going to read all the blessings. Follow, obey the law, and here is the kind of life you can expect, right? Now, that mindset makes a lot of sense in the Old Testament. In fact, when, when Moses is trying to sum it up, he says, look, I, let me just not make this too complicated, okay? Don't pretend that we've taken all the words of the law and chucked them up into the heavens, and you're going, oh, goodness, what can I do? I can't go into the heavens and get them don't pretend that I've taken everything that's been written and thrown it into the bottom of the sea so you can go, oh my goodness, what could I do? I can't go down to the bottom of the sea to get it. Moses is just like, It's, it's just, it's so simple. Here it is. You can obey and have life. You can disobey and have death. Choose life. That's that's Moses' perspective. He just says, if you want to be blessed in the land when you get there, and I'm not going to be with you, here's my one bit of advice. If you want blessing, obey. What's the rest of the story of the Old Testament? We stink at obedience. Or at least the level of obedience necessary in order to qualify for that kind of blessing. And yet God breaks his own rules over and over, it seems. This is the weird thing about God in the Old Testament. Moses has set up the paradigm, right? Obey and be blessed, disobey and be cursed. And yet what else do we read about God? He is long-suffering. He sets up a house that's built around sacrifice. Why? So that disobedient people can still come, have their sins purged from them, and still be blessed. What kind of a God is this who makes it so patently obvious, deals with people who can't even get away from the foot of the mountain without disobeying 10 simple commands, and then realizes, guys, if I go with you, without you having any system of being blessed, if we just deal with it in this paradigm, your life is going to be nothing but curses. And yet, after reading through the whole Old Testament, all of the law, most of which is about what should the priests wear whenever they're going to be appealing for the sinful people, Or what do you need to offer by way of a sacrifice? Or what do you need to build your calendar around so you remember this whole mindset of a long-suffering and merciful God? Or where do you need to go and how does the sacrifice work? The, the whole thing, the whole law is built around, Do this and your life is going to go well. You didn't do that. Okay, here's the provision. Here's the atonement, here's the sacrifice. Here's the way to send out a goat and let it take away all your stuff. Here's the way to bring an offering no matter what you can afford. And then through that process, I will overlook your sin for a season because that's the way I want it to be. I want to be with my people. It's just, here's the way blessing works. Here's the way cursing works. And yet, people see that whole system and come away according to sort of a pharisaical Judaizer kind of language and say so the only way to be blessed by God is to obey. And in chapter three, Paul's going to really start to take that mindset apart. And he's going to talk here in verse uh, one through nine about blessing. And then next week, he's going to start talking about cursing. And how do you get blessed? And what happens? Where do the curses actually come from then still? So this is kind of part one of a two-parter. So we're going we're gonna to talk about blessing. But here's, here's the other interesting thing. I've, I don't know when you went to school, but the school that I went to was a real fan of a guy named Dale Carnegie. Now, Dale Carnegie wrote one of the most offensively titled books I think I've ever heard in my entire life called How to Win Friends and Influence People. Which, if you were one of Dale Carnegie's friends at the point, made you think, "What did you win me? And have you been influencing me my entire life? Is that the way this has worked? That somehow I'm not with you because you like me, but just because you saw me as an asset? And Dale would say, uh, yeah, more or less. Here's a summary of his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, techniques in handling people. Uh, don't criticize, condemn, or complain. Give Honest and sincere appreciation arouse in the other per- person an eager desire. All right, so that's how to that's how to handle people. You ever been handled by somebody like that? You you may not know it. Here's some of the other things they might do. Six ways to make people like you, become genuinely interested in them. Smile. Remember that person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language. When I was at Philadelphia College of Bible, you could always tell when somebody had actually taken this class because before they started to read that, they were just like, Yo, dude, what's up? How you doing? After they're they like, Darren, it is so good to see you. Hi, Darren. Tara, now you And I'm like. Hi, how's it going? Wow, that's a lot of teeth you've got right there. Yeah, Dale told Nick to Carnegie, Darren, told me I need to smile a lot at you and I need to say your name. And so that's, and you should be a good listener and encourage others to talk about themselves. Talk in terms of the other person's interest. How to win people to your way of thinking? Well, the only way to get the best of an argument is to avoid it. You should show respect for the other person's opinion. Never say you're wrong. Begin in a friendly way. Paul, what in the world? were you thinking? I am astonished, he says, and in chapter 3, he begins this way. "O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He's violating, I think, every rule. I don't think, I mean, he said their name, but... <laughs> not exactly the way you want it. This is the way somebody else translated it. Oh, my dear idiots of the Galatian church, how can you be so idiotic? And Dale's just rolling over in his grave thinking, Paul, what were you doing? If you wanted to influence these people, never criticize. Give them an idea they think is their own and then win them over to it. Show them the benefits of it. It's... Oh, fools. At least he used their name. He says it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed. And then we don't quite feel this, except for we sort of feel it, and it's the last thing he says about Jesus. Before your eyes, Jesus was publicly portrayed as the smartest among you. Jesus was publicly portrayed as a good teacher, as a faithful example, as the perfect son of God. No, he was portrayed before you as crucified. That accent on the end is sort of in Greek a way of saying, this is the thing I want you to know. What did I tell you about Jesus? Jesus. Yes, I told you he was a good teacher. Yes, I told you he was perfect. Yes, I told you he was the par excellence example of what a human being would look like if they actually came as the image of the invisible God on the planet. He was all of those things. But before your eyes, he was publicly portrayed as the one slaughtered for us as the one nakedly and publicly executed for us as the one to use the worst death sentence. You could imagine the one who suffered that for us. That's the way I portrayed Jesus to you. So who bewitched you? What sorcerers came in among you? And cast a spell so that the one I portrayed before you is now a different man altogether. I I gave you the Son of God crucified for the sins of man, and you transformed him through some bewitchment into this guy who requires more of the law from his followers? What happened? Then he's going to pull a magic trick of his own because he says, Let me ask you only this. And maybe that's a Dale Carnegie technique. I'm not entirely sure. He sets them up for one question, but if you look there, there's a lot of question marks that come after this. We're going to break them up into three questions because he's really asking one thing What happened? But he tries to get at it because what he wants to do is he wants to confront the hypnosis that our works can bring into our Christian lives. He wants to address the spell and say, I I need to talk to you about this. So let me just ask you something. We're going to start this way. Did you receive the spirit, right? Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, he's asking this one question. How did you come to God? That's the first category. How we come to God. How did you get here? When when first you received the spirit, born again people brought into the body of Christ, when you heard the good news of Jesus as publicly portrayed as crucified for you and you came to God, how did that happen? Did it happen Because we ranked all of your works and the record keeping that you had done of your perfection as as measured up against the law or did you hear something and believe it? It's kind of a rhetorical question. The answer is we heard stuff and believed it. Yes! Did I do anything else? How did we come to God? We heard good news and we believed that good news to be true. Right? Right. So then he punctuates it again by calling him idiots. Are you so foolish? First round of questions. Let me ask you only this. How did you first come to the Christian faith? It's a faith. Not how did you come to the Christian obedience. Not how did you come to the Christian way of life. How did you come to this? How did you receive the spirit? How did you come to God? You heard something. You attached your faith to it. And you believed that that faith would produce fruit. So let me ask you only this. Skipping over that and moving to the second round of questions. Verse 3. Having then begun by the spirit are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, he moves from how we come to God to how we become like God. What is it then that God, having brought you to him, how is it that he actually perfects you? How is it that he makes you more like him? Are you now then being perfected by the flesh? And you see now he's, he's put these categories and in kind of a, a, a Hebrew parallel way, What he talked about as works of the law were contrasted by hearing with faith. He's now kind of giving new categories to those. There's the flesh, which wants so desperately for the credit of its own obedience. And the spirit, the one who brings a message to us that we believe and empowers our belief. How did you come to God in the first place? And secondly, how are you you becoming like God? And then he asks his kind of parallel to that. The first one was, are you so foolish? Here, secondly, he's like, was all of this wasted? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain? Did, Did all that it cost you to shed yourself of your own merits and everything that it costs you to come to Jesus and simply hear this message and believe it. Whether you were a Gentile, and you had some pagan way of thinking where you were going to offer different sacrifices and appease different gods and try to figure out what you wanted and try to find the, the, ca- the, the Dewey Decimal System so that you could get to the card catalog and figure out, okay, which god do I need to appease in order to be? I want a baby, so here we go. I, did, you, did you suffer so much by giving all that up? Or if, if you were Jewish... Did you suffer so much in terms of the way that you had to reorient your minds away from this idea of I have to obey the law in order to be blessed by God, obey the law to be blessed by God when the whole law is set up because you can't obey in the first place? Did you you go through all of that and then just waste it? The third set of questions he asks starts in verse five. Does he then who supplies the spirit to you and who works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. So now he's back to the, to the first way of talking about this contrast. Your flesh wants the law so desperately. And in contrast to that, When the Spirit makes you alive, it awakens you. He he brings a change inside of you so that you delight in the idea of being brought to God because of what you believe, and, and that's it. But, oh, there's a starvation that happens over here. There's a craving for attention, a craving for superiority, a craving to go back to that idea of coming to church and ranking myself because I can look at the other people in here and I know they're not as good as I am. Or I can be a little more covetous because I see them and I'm like, man, I got to get there. I got to get there. But I know the pecking order and I can kind of rank everybody in church and I can say, boy, you just, you and your attendance, your parenting, it just isn't way down there. I'm, I'm not there, but I'm getting there. And if God had to cut us and say, like, bottom half is out, well, sorry to the rest of you, but, the, you know, we're, we're going to make it. Something about our flesh just craves that. Because at the end of the day, that makes us arrogant, doesn't it? That's why Paul, when writing to the Ephesians, says grace is grace So that we can't boast, but instead we can worship. And what Paul is getting at through these three sets of questions when he's talking to the Galatians here is let's ask, how did you begin? was by faith, right? How are you becoming like God? It's through the spirit and by faith, right? How did you get power from God? Was it because he looked at you and said, "Well, your weak qualified you. Therefore, you get access to my power and to my miraculous work among you." Is that because of your obedience? No, it's because of the spirit. It's because of hearing with faith. And then Rather than to point back and say, well, if, if, if you think that way, you're foolish. Or if you think this way, then you wasted your life. Instead, at the end of this, the transition he makes is actually to what they would be thinking about all in themselves. It's the Old Testament. This is the exact same thing that Paul does in the book of Romans when he's trying to make an argument to the Roman church. He points back to two of their heroes. David is one of them. But interestingly, when he points back to David, he doesn't point back to like David and Goliath. He doesn't point back to David the psalmist. He points back to David the adulterer. David the potential rapist. Thank you so much for that. Depending on how you read the story, Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose sins are overcome. That's what Paul quotes about David. And if you're David, right? In paradise, kind of watching Paul write. Like, oh, look, I'm showing up. No, not that, man. Come on, don't bring me up for that. I'm David, dude. I'm the guy who commanded God's armies. I was the man after God's own heart. You don't want to bring that into the record of how the gospel makes sense? Paul's like, I got you, David. But no, we're going to go with that moment that you are just really embarrassed about. And ask the question, how did you get blessed? Relations... Paul doesn't use David, but he does use the other guy that, that Paul uses in Romans, Abraham. And here he says, this is what we know about Abraham. Abraham believed God. You see, because what you could be tempted to think is that Abraham obeyed God. But did he? I mean, Is Abraham a great example of obedience? Well, he had a whole history with his family and he left his family because God told him to go. Good. But when Hebrews talks about that, it calls it faith. Not so much obedience. Obedience that flows from faith, but the primary thing is faith. But then in so many other situations, go to the land I'll show you. All right, there's a famine. I'm leaving the land. Was that obedience? You're going to have a child. Great. I'm going to use somebody else to do it. Was that obedience? So many situations. Tell the truth. No, I'm going to lie. Was that obedience? And then he raises kids. It's just the family trait. It's, it, Abraham's family is not necessarily known as a family of obedience. Which is why Paul, when pointing to them, says, Just as Abraham believed God. I want you to imagine for a minute, you're, you're dating somebody, all right? Not if you're married, right? If you're married right now, then I don't want you to envision dating somebody. I want you to go back to that time when you would have been dating somebody, all right? And, you, and without this being too weird, let's go, you know, when you're dating your actual spouse. How's that, all right? Before they were your spouse, as my father in law says, I never kissed my wife until we were married. Like, really? Well, she wasn't my wife until we were married. <laughs> all right. So we'll go into that headspace, right? So take your spouse before they were your spouse. Or, you know, if you're not married, you know, envision this at the moment, all right? You're going to this one. You've got your heart set on and, and they've invited you over to grandma's place. And grandma is going to make grandma's special dish. This is grandma's and you can make it whatever you want. Paprikash, lasagna, it doesn't matter, right? But grandma knows how to make it because her mother and her mother before her passed this recipe down and now you get to partake in the great family dish made by grandma. You come to the table and it's prepared for you and everybody's kind of looking at you like, grandma's dish. And you're like, Grandma, come with me to the kitchen here for a sec. <laughs> you got any pepper? You got some oregano? Because uh, this, is, this is okay. It's okay, it just needs help. It's okay, it needs an addition. What in the world is going to happen? You're not getting an invite back. If that relationship is going to continue, you will not see like one half of the church smiling at you because you will never out, un, you know, outdo that moment. You will never live it down. Because what you've done is to take the perfect dish and insult it with your addition. You get the analogy? That's what Paul's trying to say. The dish of your salvation was prepared for you. From beginning to the end, prepared for you to be received, not improved. Not added to. Your pepper and spice, your suggestions to grandma are for your sake and your sake only. But you are not judging this work. This work is, this dish is judging you. Right? If you've you've ever like can imagine walking into the museum with like your sharpie marker or with your watercolors and being this is very nice but I will just touch it up a little What are you doing right This is I used to watch a comedian who played the piano Victor Borgia and uh and he would bring a lady in, and they had this whole routine going, but she was she very proper, and she would put her hand on the piano, and he'd smack it away, because she can't touch his piano whenever he's, you know. But whenever she finally started to sing in the background, he'd be going, oh she' be like, "What are you doing?" Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Was I singing along with you?" And you know it was their whole bit, right? His singing was not adding to the piece. Your watercolors aren't adding to the work. Your suggestions aren't adding to Grandma's dish. It's just nothing but offensive. Paul, the gospel and our works. But if you don't buy it, if you really want to kind of reach back into the past and kind of talk about Abraham, then Paul will move away from this, this trying to break the spell of what's happening with our works. And he wants to move on instead to understanding the way we're supposed to see the past. And so he's talking about Abraham and he says in chapter five, or sorry, in verse five, or did this happen by hearing with faith? And then he starts in verse six, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Uh, Isaac, a couple slides ahead, I've got that that quote from John in um, Matthew 3. This is what Jude read for us. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. John the Baptist was also not one who read Dale Carnegie's book. He had no problem offending this brood of vipers. And that's the one talking here. People are coming, seeing John the Baptist as as he's baptizing. And he's clearly baptizing some who should be baptized. Some who need to repent. But then the Pharisees come, maybe to approve, maybe to judge. And John says to them, "What what are you doing? You need to be cleansed just as much. And he anticipates their objection. They would say, "Oh, but we are children of Abraham. How dare you?" And knowing that's the way they're gonna go, he's like, "What is what? You're made from dust. To dust you'll return. God could take that dust. He could take those stones, and he could pop the children of Abraham out of that if he wanted to. Your genetic connection does not do anything for you." And here then, Paul is arguing the same exact point. He's trying to come back and say, all right, it is those, verse 7, of faith who are the actual children of Abraham. It's not those of descent, and it's not those of works and obedience and deeds. It is those of faith, those who here they get a connection to Abraham. He's tying into the psyche of everybody from the most religious in Jerusalem to all those who might have been hearing from the Judaizers there in Galatia. Hey, do you really want to have a connection to God? You got to get yourself tied back to Abraham. Abraham was a man who spouted up a nation and out of them came the law. So you got to get connected to them through the law. And Paul's saying that's not the way to get connected to Abraham. John was right. God could do anything he wanted. You want to be connected to Abraham? Believe like Abraham. That's all you got to do. So the question is, what's he referring to? Jude read to us Genesis chapters 12, 1, 2, and 3, the first time God spoke to Abraham. A few things happened in between that and chapter 15, but in chapter 15, we read this. After these things, the events of 13 and 14, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, "Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus." You heard twelve one to three, right? I will bless you, make your name great. You can do all that without kids, except for the whole part. I'll make you a nation. And I'll bless all the families of the earth through you. Everybody's going to bless you. Not just you, but that whole nation. They'll be blessed. And those who curse you, I'll I'll curse them. You got to have kids for that to happen. And in chapter 15, he's going, God, I don't know. Right now you've given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be, chapter 15, verse 6, and he believed the Lord, Abram. Believed the Lord, and he counted it to him. The Lord counted it to Abram as righteousness. Key question from the Old Testament how is Abraham a righteous man? It's not his track record, it's not his polygamy, it's not his scheming. And he's not a guy who can point to his kids and grandkids and go, oh, I'm so proud of my righteous generations coming after me. The only way he could point to any righteousness in his life is through this simple action. Hearing and obeying. Hearing and believing. Hearing and responding. That's It, whatever this faith thing is, it has to do with hearing what God says, believing it to be true, and then becoming or being reckoned or being counted to him as righteousness. Now, what we understand about God's word though is that it's not just as though Paul is saying that's what just happened in Abraham's life. He's also saying in verse 8, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. That's a reading of that story, isn't it? Because it's combining chapter 12 and chapter 15 and putting them together. Abram, through you, I'm going to bless the world. Abram, I'm going to do this in your life. I, I believe you. Great, you're righteous. Okay, now how is the rest of the world going to be righteous too? By just imitating exactly what you did. Not, not all the mistakes. But imitating the process of hearing God and believing him to be true. That's what makes people righteous according to Paul. So much so that Paul is looking back on this Old Testament story and saying that is the paradigm for how it would work for every single human to follow. You want to be related to Abraham? You only get related to Abraham through the imitation of his hearing and believing. That's it. That's where the the process uh, kind of is located here. Then he ends in verse 8, and he takes it out to its, what we would consider to be its, its natural conclusion of how we get blessed. Listen to, to Paul, though, in, in Romans chapter 4, in order to kind of understand this a little bit more fully. He says, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now this is the weird thing. Abraham does a lot of stuff to make that promise happen according to his resources. You know that at 15, he's got a servant, and he's thinking, the servant's going to be my heir because I've I've produced nothing from my body by way of the other generation. God's in 15 comes back and says, no, it's actually going to happen. What's his next step? His next step is Hagar. He decides to impregnate his wife's servant and bear Ishmael through that process. Is that perfect faith? Is that perfect obedience? At the end of the day, no, chapter 17 is going to need to come and Abraham's going to need to hear a clarification again. Then the miracle is going to have to happen through Sarah, Sarai to Sarah, so that we can have Isaac, who's named after the fact that when Sarah hears about it, she starts just laughing, almost Mocking God. Is that what your faith looks like sometimes? Honestly, that's like the only thing my faith looks like. I wish I could totally sum it up the way that Paul does. No unbelief made Darren waver. Nothing made Darren doubt. He heard and he believed. Thank you, Paul. I I appreciate that. And yet, if we had to take Abraham's works that went along with his faith, I don't know that I would summarize it this way. Paul seems to just skirt past the perfection of his deeds and focus on the reality of his faith. That means something significant for us that one of the most important things we can do for each other is to stoke that faith rather than to judge each other off of our mistakes. It doesn't mean that obedience doesn't matter. It certainly does. Repentance and obedience and following after Jesus and and abiding in him and having fruit poured from that process. All of those things matter. But at the central core of what it means to be in this Christian way of living is to be remembering what God has said and believing it. Whether we do things perfectly or not, because we will not, but instead to follow God the way that Abraham has followed God. And then what will happen, what will happen is a process of symbiosis. What in the world is that? A symbiotic relationship Is one in which two things are depending on one another, living at the same time as one another. And that's the way Paul summarizes and says, somehow in that process, that's the way that the good news works. He finishes chapter 8, or verse 8, this way and says, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Verse nine. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You see so many times I want to take my life and I want to set it up between two mountains. I want to weigh things out. And then I want to I ask the percentage question. Darren's weak. Lay it in the valley between the two mountains and let the law yell at it. What do I hear more? And if we can do it like an election where I come away 60-40, that is a landslide win for Darren. That sounds awesome. How, what a great way to take my life. It's just, what if that wasn't my week? What if every Sunday what we had to do was take our lives and put it in the valley between two mountains and ask the question, do I hear a louder blessing or a louder curse yelled over top of my life? What if that was the way we had to live with other people? We had to defer to them based on whether they had more blessing or less blessing. What if we had to rank prosperity in other two people's lives and use that as the measure for whether or not God was blessing them or cursing them and then we could figure out who was more important, who was more loved by God? Wouldn't that be a terrible way to live? Guys, that is the way the world lives. Cancel culture has just taken it and Amplify it at 100%. You will follow us and believe us and be with us or we will crush you. Why? Because this is a world dominated by the flesh and that is the way the flesh lives. Rank yourself based on what you've earned, based on your obedience to the law, and then we'll figure out where everything stands at the end of it. I don't know if I got a 50-50 this last week. I don't know what I got this last week. But I'll tell you that if we're going to live that way, stay tuned because the good news is not feeling so good next week. But the question right now is, is that where blessing comes? Is in the valley between the mountains? Just having to hear more good because I had more obedience? Is that the way I get blessed by God? Paul says, You idiots of Trinity Church, how did you get so idiotic? And we say, I don't know. We just lived the week, and this is what happens to us. And Paul goes, okay, did you forget? Did you get to be a Christian because you were good? Has God been aiding you because you were good? Did he do things among you because you were good? No, it's because he came to you and told you something good, and you believed it. You heard his promises, and by faith, you attached yourself to them. To use Brad's analogy from last week, we got grafted into Jesus, and that connection is growing stronger and stronger. But by now, it's connected by faith. One day, we won't need it because we'll see him face to face. But for now, faith is what's holding that in there because you don't want to be connected to some other stump. And only faith holds us to Christ. So at the end of the day, what he's saying is summed up here in verse 9. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. John Stott in his commentary on Galatians says it this way. The law says, do this. The gospel says Christ has done it all. The law requires works of human achievement. The gospel requires faith in Christ's achievement. The law makes demands and bids us obey. The gospel brings promises and bids us believe. Or in a slightly more pithy way, run John and work, the law commands. Yet finds me neither feet nor hands. But sweeter news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and lends me wings. We cannot live to impress God with who we are. We cannot live to impress other people in this church with who we are. You will find no favor and no blessing from God sitting between the mountain and hoping and crossing your fingers that you just tip the scales the right way. It doesn't work. The only way is if Jesus is by our side and wherever he gets to go, we're with him. Are going to encourage anyone this week? Let that be the encouragement. Jesus is with you. He's promised never to leave and he's never broken his word. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. And yet we we want credit. We want credit for the powerful things that you're doing among us. We want credit for how we're becoming more like you. We want credit for the fact that you picked us in the first place. And Father, from this text, we repent of that desire. We want to put our flesh to death so that we don't try to earn your favor and blessing because of what we've done. Instead, Lord, we want to believe the words of the one who said, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are those who are caught between and try to make peace. Buster the meek. Buster the persecuted. Father, this rubs against the grain of this world and sometimes it rubs against the grain of our lives. And yet we see in ourselves poverty. We see in ourselves weakness and reason to be humble. So Father, when those... Moments come up this next week. When the evidence of our disobedience comes up this next week. I pray that we would see you crucified for us. I pray that we would see Jesus risen for us that in him we would find strength and hope and forgiveness because we remember his promises and we remember that you are true if this is what faith is And if this is what unbelief is, then we close together by saying, we believe, but help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing these truths together.